Good evening. We're in 1 Corinthians 2 and we're reading the first five verses. Um, Paul writing his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 to 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul systematically works through various spiritual problems plaguing the church as he writes to the Corinthians. In chapter 1, we've seen he started with the subject of division, that there is a divisive spirit that had fractured the fellowship of the Corinthian church. If you remember, some were saying, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Or then the super spiritual, I follow Christ. And each was looking down on the other, claiming to be more spiritual, which unmasked the deeper problem of pride and boastfulness of the Corinthian Christians. And to address the problem of pride, Paul highlights three surprising facts that shatter pride. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, that was a couple of weeks ago, Paul reminds us that the church's message is weak and foolish by the world's standards. It's the message of the cross, the message of a weak, suffering saviour. And then last week we saw verses 26 to 31 of chapter 1. In order to counter the Corinthian church's boasting, Paul reminds us that the members of the church are by the world's estimation weak, foolish. And that God chose the nobodies, the nothings, to bring to nothing the things that are. The church's message, the church's members are weak and foolish. So there is no ground at all for boasting there. God saves. It is all the work of God, not the work of men. It isn't in consequence of some sophisticated rhetorical message. But neither is it the pedigree of those who hear it. It isn't something in the hearer or something in the preacher that gets the glory. But God, who works by a weak message in the eyes of the world, in the hearts of weak hearers in the eyes of the world, to save sinners for himself. The church's message and the church's members, therefore, are weak and foolish according to the wisdom of the world. Paul's third Pride killing truth is found in our passage this evening, chapter 2, 1 to 5, that the church's ministry is also weak and foolish. The message, the members and the ministry. No one can boast in themselves. They can't boast in their leaders, not in Paul, not in Paulus, not in Cephas, not in their favourite pastor or preacher. No, the ministry that God uses, like the message he blesses and the people that he saves, is apparently, according to the world's wisdom, weak and foolish. The blessing of God is not in our rhetoric or the pedigree of the people or in the personality of the preacher, but in the gospel itself, 
anointed by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to understand that is where our confidence must rest. So in these five verses of chapter two, Paul gives us a synopsis of his own approach to ministry. And he highlights for us his message in verses one and two. That's his message. That's what he said. Then in verses three and four, he gives us his method, how he said it. And then finally, his motive in verse five, why he said it and why he said it the way he did. So it's those three points again in Paul's life, Paul's testimony, Paul's message, Paul's method, Paul's motive. And as an aside, I come to it right at the end. Just do look out for the rich Trinitarianism that goes runs through the whole passage. Never let anyone say that the doctrine of the Trinity is for, of academic interest only, is irrelevant, an abstraction. No, the Trinity shaped Paul's thinking about ministry, about preaching. Believing that Trinitarian preaching produces God-intoxicated believers as they hear the word of God preached like this. Well, this is a one of only a few passages in the New Testament where Paul speaks autobiographically. He's speaking in an autobiographical way and he's candid as he does so. In verse 3, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. The way Paul describes his ministry flies in the face of the expectations of a public speaker in Corinth in those days. And I believe flies in the face of the expectations of the world today. His preaching purposely refused the polish and rhetorical devices that signalled sophistication among his hearers. When Paul showed up at Corinth, he was weak, he was a wreck. His health was shattered by a repeated imprisonment, being subjected to mob violence. You read it in Acts for yourself. When he went to Iconium in chapter 14, he was almost stoned to death. He moved on to Lystra, where he was in fact stoned by the mob. When he got to Philippi in chapter 16, his preaching incited a riot and he and Silas were thrown into prison. In Thessalonica, the same thing happened except Paul was able to escape to Berea. But the mob seized and beat Jason, in whose house Paul and his team apparently had been staying. And then when they get to Berea and Paul preaches, what happens? There was a riot. Paul and his partners, gospel partners, had to flee. By the time Paul gets to Corinth, Acts 18, he is understandably a wee bit twitchy. If every time you opened your mouth, people were converted, but every time you did, there was a riot and people got hurt. So it's no wonder that Paul came to Corinth in weakness and fear and in much trembling. So by his own admission, by his own words, Paul wasn't cutting much of an impressive figure when he showed up to the Corinthian churches. So why listen to Paul? Why value his ministry? And Paul's answer has these three parts. The first part is verses one and two, his message. He puts it negatively and positively, which is a pattern that goes through the five verses. So in verse one, Paul says negatively, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He is determined not to use the rhetorical tricks of the trade. He has no interest in manipulating his audience to play on their emotions, to sway them with flights of rhetorical fancy. He has 
no interest in packaging his preaching in the style the Corinthians preferred. He doesn't want to tell them what they want to hear. He doesn't want to tickle their ears. No, the Corinthian culture was used to travelling orators and entertainers, speaking on street corners and in lecture halls, in trade guilds, in the social clubs of the day. And there were recognised patterns of speech and rhetorical devices that were commonly used. And you would be considered sought after, valued, based on your ability to master those tricks of the trade. But Paul deliberately sought to ensure that no one would confuse his message with the rhetoric, with the, with the, with the fashion of the day. He says in verse 2, I decided to know nothing. He, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. His preaching ministry was designed not to make much of him, as, and, you know, as the, those ancient orators of Corinth were doing, but to make much of Jesus Christ and his cross. It is impossible to overestimate the importance of 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, because it shapes the whole of Paul's approach to his ministry. This is Paul's mission statement, his statement of principle. This was his pattern. Every occasion he opened his mouth, he preached Jesus and him crucified, which is what makes Christian preaching Christian. We resolve in every message, from every passage, to tell people the one thing that makes the difference, the one thing that everyone urgently needs to hear, that Jesus Christ was crucified for you. That there is pardon for guilty sinners at the cross. There is cleansing and reconciliation with God. There is peace with God and peace from God. There is a new community. Adoption into the family and household of faith. A thousand other blessings and glories besides. Available in the free gift of grace at the cross of Jesus Christ. That was Paul's consistent message. The hymn writer says, In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. And when I am alone, when I am alone, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can take all the world, give me Jesus. And that is the cry of every believer who knows what their heart needs the most. Give me Jesus. And that is what Paul resolves to supply in the ministry of the words. Not five principles of better parenting. Not ten steps, ten te steps to confidence at work. Not six techniques for a happy marriage. Not three ways to be a community engager. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus and his cross. Paul is going to deal with questions of marriage and interpersonal breakdown and lawsuits and work and sex and intimacy and other real practical matters in his letter to the Corinthians. But as you work through the letters, you see over and over and over again that he turns for the remedy, for the response to those practicalities to the cross, to the gospel of grace, to the good news about Jesus, and what Jesus has done for sinners. Paul is consistent in every message, on every subject, in pointing to Jesus and his cross. 
And that is the faith mark of faithful gospel preaching. It's what our souls, my soul, your soul needs the most. That is what you must demand every single Sunday, every Lord's Day from this pulpit. The message of the word of God relentlessly pointing you to Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity who was crucified for sinners. Now, the message is Jesus. Secondly, in verses three and four, look at what Paul says about his method. There is a negative positive pattern. Remember, I just referred to that a bit ago. See it negatively in verse three. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Verse four. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Our confidence for change in ourselves, in those among whom we minister, doesn't rest with the power of our own reasoning, our rhetoric, our skill. Our confidence for change must rest elsewhere. Not in self, but elsewhere. Paul is reminding the Corinthians they were converted. The church was planted as a result of a ministry characterized by fear and trembling and weakness none of the marks of a worldly plausible sophisticated rhetoric an unlikely ministry conducted by an implausible figure so how were the Corinthians converted how did this Jewish rabbi plant this church in such a sophisticated and hostile context well look at verse four if Paul's hope and confidence for spiritual change doesn't rest in his ability to reason and argue, convince and persuade, not in the force of rhetoric or in the skill of a Bible teacher. Where does it rest? My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. He means that when he opened up the text, the meaning of the Bible, he applied the good news of Jesus crucified to hearts and minds. God the Spirit took his ministry and wielded it with power, although it came from a lisping, stammering tongue. It was made the instrument of irresistible change in the hearts of those who heard. It came with power, thundering with earth-stopping force, their minds arresting them, gripping them, changing them forever. Paul didn't do it. God did it by the Holy Spirit and in his great power. And your own experience will testify to that. The history of the church is littered with examples of God doing that. The one I like the most is probably the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. As a young man, Spurgeon set out one Sunday morning in midwinter to go to church. You know it probably well. There was a snowstorm of such violence that he was forced to turn aside from where he would normally went to church to a small primitive Methodist chapel. And he took his seat under the gallery and almost no one else had made it that day. And the regular preacher hadn't made it. And here is what happened in Spurgeon's words. At last, a very thin looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. When he'd managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery 
and I dare so dare say with so few present he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey it now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands and shouting as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I've been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. I looked until I could have almost looked by my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks alone to him. There was a man who couldn't preach, who had no training, couldn't pronounce the words, but he was full of his message with urgency and passion. He pointed to Jesus and his cross and the spirit of God took it and changed a man's heart forever. It wasn't the skill of the preacher. It was a demonstration of the spirit and power. Willed in the gospel in Spurgeon's heart that made the change. I wonder if that has happened to you. Do you know anything of the demonstration of the spirit and power? It won't happen in the same way or look the same. How we come to Jesus doesn't look the same. There is no pattern, no thing you have to do. It need not be dramatic or sudden aspersions. It may be slow, mysterious over time, maybe even unnoticed. But the question isn't how it has happened, but whether it has happened. And you you have to answer that, not somebody answer it for you or not somebody tell me that somebody else is saved. Have you been born again? Do you know anything of the life-giving, soul-renovating ministry of the Spirit of Jesus Christ? That is the most urgent question you will ever answer. The Spirit must take the gospel and bring it home in power to your heart. I know some of you pray for me each Lord's Day as I get up to preach and I'm so thankful that you do. Let me make a request as you pray for me. First of all, pray for my holiness and then pray that the words of this text that as the word of God is read and preached, it might come not in words of eloquent wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power that the glory might be God's and the blessing might be ours. The message, Jesus crucified. The method, reliance on demonstration and power of the spirit. The motive, thirdly, why do it this way? Well, look at verse five. So your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He does it negatively that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. He doesn't want people being impressed with Paul. He has no interest in extending his influence or gathering a following. He has no interest in people hanging on his every word. He wants their faith to rest on God. The power of the God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Would you resist the urge to look to your pastors for what only Jesus can give you?
The Apostle Paul said, I don't want you following me, but I want your faith resting on the power of God, resting on the work of Christ and in the mighty working in your heart of the Holy Spirit. Don't look to your pastor for what only Jesus can give you. We have enough trouble with a Messiah complex as it is without your help. Thank you very much. But look to Christ, Paul is saying. Trust in God, Paul is saying. That's where your confidence must land. Not in men, but in God who speaks by his word. Now, did you notice the Trinitarianism of Paul's approach? He wants our confidence resting in God the Father, who has given his son to the horrors of the cross that we might live. And if we're to receive the benefits of Christ's redemption, then the proclamation of the good news must sound in the demonstration of the spirit and power to take away our dead hearts and give us new life. Would you join me in pleading with God to give us and maintain among us a ministry like that? They would be blessed of heaven, anointed by the Spirit. Paul's ministry focuses our attention on Christ and his cross. That's what your heart needs. Give me Jesus. His method was to depend on the Spirit of God, to cry out to heaven for power, and his motive that every eye might rest on Abba Father, on Jesus Christ, and on the help of the Holy Spirit. It's the triune God into fellowship with whom we are called in the gospel and it is there that Paul points us in our passage may God bless the word for his glory amen